0: Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon, and today I'm joined by my friend Bill McCormick of the Society of Jesus to talk about his book, The Christian Structure of Politics on the De Reino of Thomas Aquinas. The book is a reading of one of St. Thomas Aquinas's perhaps lesser known works. It's on kingship. Um, but Professor McCormick, in addition to providing a close reading of the text, is also wrestling with questions about Pluralism, the Relationship Between Church and State, and Politics and Virtue. I recently read the book. I've been excited about this book for a while, so I'm glad to have uh, Do- Dr. McCormick in to talk about it. So, Professor McCormick, um, thank you so much for taking time to, to talk with us today.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: First of all, uh, just tell us about the title, The Christian Structure of Politics, on the one hand, the book, as I mentioned, uh, it's a reading of Aquinas's on kingship, but that main title indicates you're doing more than just giving a close reading of the of this text. And I could not help but notice that you don't say the structure of Christian politics; you say the Christian structure of politics, Christian structure of politics, which seems to me to suggest that you might. You might be suggesting that politics itself has a Christian structure. Um, so what's going what is going on there? What are what is the title meant to convey?
1: Those are insightful questions. Thank you so much. The phrase Christian structure of politics is from an article by John Courtney Murray. I'm being a bit subversive and using it probably differently from how he intended it, but the point to some extent, as is, is you're right, I'm doing more than a close reading. I, I want to keep asking how Aquinas is challenging us and how we understand politics today and what it means to be Christians in, in political life. And, and so the Christian structure of politics, that's the sort of subversive idea behind the title, is that Christianity is much less offering, uh, you know, a set of quick recipes for how we ought to engage political life. It's not, the fir- in the first instance, it is not offering a set of policy prescriptions or constructing ideological positions for us or giving us a kind of scheme for winning the next elections. It's much more asking us to take a step back and ask, what is the structure of politics and how does political life relate to Christianity and Christianity in a very concrete way, right? The gospel, the message of Jesus, who himself is the message. And, and so, I mean, I don't know how many of y'all are familiar with uh, the work of the late great uh, Jim Shaw. He was a Jesuit of political theories, but he was constantly asking the question: is there such a thing as Catholic political philosophy? And to some extent, of course, it was meant to be a rhetorical question. Of course, there is a kind of political theory, a kind of political science informed by Catholicism. But he he struck this kind of skeptical note. He always sort of wanted to keep the quick answers at bay to challenge us. Uh, Because of course, for many of us, we come to a work like Aquinas's Derenia with a lot of opinions already about how politics ought to work and who's the best candidate, who who are the best, what are the best kinds of policies. So to sort of take a step back and ask, what if the gospel is challenging us in our political lives a little more fundamentally than we tend to assume? That's really what finding the Christian structure of politics is about. And if, having read my book, you don't think I give a very definitive answer to any of those questions that I I think I've done my job.
0: Well, um, I do want to get into talking about some of those, these kind of enduring principles, and as you say, talk about the structure. But first, a little bit on that close reading aspect of it, because that is part of what you're doing. And so first of all, just especially, like I said, this isn't one of the familiar or as familiar to a lot of people, um, familiar works of St. Thomas Aquinas. So first, just tell us, what is De Reno about? And especially how is it different from other of those perhaps more familiar works? I'll just say, I, re- I read this book as a graduate student myself. And I was found it a little weird having read other works of Aquinas, whether it's a, in the form of a summa or a commentary or his other kinds of works. And this is a, is different. So can you talk a little bit about what's it about um, and how, is it, how does it differ from some of his other works?
1: Yes, great question. Doreno is Latin for on kingship, and it's a letter. It is a letter to a king. So it's not a treatise. It's not a set of disputed questions. It's not a commentary. It is a wholly different genre from the vast majority of Aquinas's other works. And in fact, what it's closest to uh, that we know of, or would know about is Machiavelli's The Prince. Uh, you know, Machiavelli writes a letter to the Medici, and the, the idea is to sort of guide them in an education of the right kinds of virtues to rule. And that's exactly what Aquinas' Derenio is. Uh, now, that's where the commonalities with the prince stop, <laughs> because Machiavelli is all, all, all obviously trying to do something a bit different with politics than Aquinas. But it's true. It's true that Aquinas is participating in a genre that's some, sometimes called the mirror of princes a speculum. And the idea is, is that he is trying to advise or guide this king as to how to rule. And so part of the fun, as you say, it's so different from Aquinas's other writings. And the fun would be to try to imagine how would Aquinas write this sort of treatise, uh, this sort of speculum. You see, even I can't help but call it a treatise every now and then. Uh, how would he write it to sort of perhaps make a maximal impact on his reader? Unfortunately, we don't know that that his intended reader ever got uh, the red, so it was a letter written to the Frankish crusader king on Cyprus. So there is the suspicion that Aquinas was asked by someone in the Dominican order to write this letter to the king to sort of curry favor with him so that the Dominicans could perhaps establish a, a presence on the island of Cyprus, which, of course, would then be a very good staging ground for other ministries in the Near East. So we don't know that he ever got that, but it's quite clear from many different parts of the work that he means this to be of actual practical value. Not that reading the Summa, for instance, or the Commentary on Romans would not be very practical in a distant sort of way, (laughs) but he's clearly writing for somebody, yeah, that he expects to actually have a hand in doing uh, practice and living out political life.
0: One of the things that he spends a fair bit of time talking about at the beginning, especially is he argues for the superior superiority of monarchy as a form of government. And he spends a lot of time warning about the threat of tyranny. Could you talk about like that? Like why? I mean, you talk about this in your book. Why is he spending all this time warning about the threat of tyranny? And how does this make sense? If if the genre of this piece of writing is that it's supposed to be a guide, you know, why would that be important?
1: Yeah, one of the major obstacles in the twentieth century to reading Derenia was the supposition that it's obsessed with tyranny. Well, so what does it have to tell us about sort of just politics? But think about it this way. If you're writing a letter to a ruler and you want to try to teach him right from wrong, one of the most awkward aspects of this will be broaching those aspects of injustice that the king himself could easily <laughs> could easily be participating in. Uh, and so, of course, the king doesn't want to be called a tyrant. He doesn't want to be called unjust, either in his character or in his particular actions. But, of course, Aquinas has to be sensitive to the fact that he really does need to broach this issue of tyranny with the ruler. And he does it in in really, I think, thoughtful ways. He doesn't flatter the king in any obvious sense. You know, he's not lying to the king and telling him stories he wants to hear. But Aquinas operates from the the first assumption really is that monarchy is the greatest regime. And that has certainly uh, been the belief from many, many, many major thinkers in many places and times. And monarchy in one shape or another has been a dominant political regime for much of human history, anyway. Um, you know, in Aquinas's time, it was unproblematically the best, as it is for as democracy is for us today. Uh, but Aquinas is very clever because he, if monarchy is the best regime, then part of the trick Aquinas is going to do is to really emphasize how excellent monarchy really can be, to hold it to the highest possible standards. And therefore suggest to the king that the task of politics is really quite difficult, that the king might be inclined toward riches and honor and pride, to gold, to, to reputation. But the task of politics, the task of living out uh, the excellence, the justice, and monarchy, it is no small feat. Politics is very hard. That's probably the, one of the main lessons of Derenia, which is not very attractive. It's not very exciting. But that's kind of the point you know, for many political leaders, perhaps even in our own time, I'll let you all be the judge of that. You know, they're not, they're not always interested in the hard, boring work of governance, the behind the scenes stuff of uh, getting roads paved and making sure people have food to eat, you know, and having, making sure the laws are properly codified and all that. Uh, So, you know, one of Aquinas's considerations in the book is about the climate of the place where you found a city. So, I mean, in some ways, couldn't be more boring, but couldn't be more fundamental either. And so uh, what Aquinas manages to do is to suggest in this book that actually injustice is quite common. Uh, That the sort of mild tyranny, he calls, is rampant in political life. Uh, We might think of Aquinas as a kind of perfectionist who always wants politics to be perfectly ordered to human ends. And, of course, we would love he would love that, but that's not how life is. Life is full of injustice. Life is full of evil. And Aquinas isn't afraid to shy away from that. And he wants his royal reader to to sort of be confronted by the fact that this, again, mild tyranny is pervasive. So the royal reader, the prince, should not be afraid of naming his own vices, his own sins, and trying to reform himself. So in a way... The book offers an examination of conscience for the the reader, whether it's us today or the the king in the 1260s.
0: So you're kind of all you're already kind of going in this direction to to continue with kind of a similar line of thought. And your in your section on the book on the reward of the king, you you talk about this about virtue and what it means to live a good life um, as a ruler of a political community. Can you just say a little bit more, what does it mean to be a virtuous ruler? And then what does it mean, what does it look like when it goes, rulership goes wrong? And what is and what does virtue look like for the, for the ruler?
1: Yeah, I don't think it's tautological, but it's close to say that to be virtuous is to be fully human, to be most fully actualized, uh, most fully realized as a human person. And Aquinas agrees with Aristotle and many other thinkers that, in a way, human rulers have the best opportunities to actualize all of the virtues. That when you, when you are a political leader, you have all these opportunities to be just, to be courageous, to be prudent, to be moderate, or, or not. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, he, he thinks that the just ruler is sort of the acme of a kind of human excellence. And that's really what Aquinas is pushing the royal reader toward uh, that. Yeah, again, thinking about the cardinal virtues, but also the other ones that you can make a very long list, obviously, of virtues. And so part of the challenge for Aquinas is to get the reader to recognize that the acquisition and cultivation of those virtues is good for the ruler himself. You know, it's not just taking your your medicine or eating your vegetables, but it really is part of being a full human being. And that's uh, the road to happiness, right? That's not the riches. It's not the honor. Um, It's, it's, it's being that full, full human being. Uh, And so when rulers aren't just, you know, then they can quickly become some of the worst human beings, right? So sort of the idea that the corruption of the best is the worst, and so, of course, it's it's important to see that a tyrant, an unjust ruler, his injustices have horrible consequences for his citizens, but it also has horrible consequences for him. <laughs> you know, it is bad to be a tyrant. It is bad for your soul to be an unjust person because you are this kind of flawed human being. And I won't get into the details of, but Aquinas has all these funny lines in De Renu about how if you're a tyrant, you know you're not going to have friends. You're going to be sad and alone. <laughs> and, and so, and of course, we see this. We see this even in the 21st century. That really horrible uh, leaders like Hitler felt very hunted and felt friendless, and that their their mad desire to grasp power. Is precisely what made them feel so helpless all the power they had made them feel so powerless because they knew it was so fragile it was so unstable and and aquinas has a surprisingly good phenomenological sense of this because he knows that vice is very unstable um good people are very predictable in very good ways you know you you do the right thing you do the virtuous thing you get better and better um and uh, vicious sinful people well You never quite know when they're going to send.
0: Well, you know, I wonder how you could imagine what Aquinas might say to political leaders today. Now, obviously, in our form of government, very different. We don't have a monarchy. So you're not you wouldn't be talking about just one individual ruler. But I I can't help as you're talking, I couldn't help but wonder like, you know, what kind of guidance would St. Thomas give um, if he were writing a similar type of of um, it's not a treatise, as you say, but it's almost kind of like kind of a guide. If you're writing a guide, um, you know, for Catholic legislators or or um, or judges or executives, I I don't know, because as you say, there's an element of this that, yes, you're talking about the structure of politics. We're going to kind of get into that part of it a little bit more. But also there's this reflection on what it means to be a virtuous Rather than say ruler, because ruler is for us Americans, that seems almost kind of foreign way of thinking. But uh, rather than say ruler, maybe you say like, you know, political leader. Uh, We do have those. Uh, And a lot of this would still apply, wouldn't you say, to political leaders even today?
1: Absolutely. It applies. Absolutely. I mean, to pick up on something you've already talked about, democracy is widely accepted as the greatest political forum today. And so one of the challenges we continue to face is how do we live it out? How do we live out its promise? And if we're so committed to it, uh, how do we mitigate some of its negatives? You know, how do we recognize some of its limitations? I, I think we could have much more. And we do. There are critical conversations about that today, but they can't. They can't end. I think one way of conceiving of Aquinas's advice for yeah, as you said, political leaders today might be in terms of something like high, high standards and moderate expectations. You know, the Christian life. And there I'm kind of cribbing from uh, the great political philosopher, Leo Strauss. Uh, the idea that Christianity and even Aristotle and Plato before Christianity set pretty lofty goals for politics and human life. But well, we're are we are very aware that those don't always pan out. In fact, they never do, <laughs> this side of the kingdom of God. So the challenge, the challenge then becomes living out those aspirations on a daily basis, on a daily basis, doing the hard work and recognizing that virtue comes in the small actions as well as in the big ones. You know, this is an analysis that many people have made before, but of course, one of the challenges of life today. In 21st century, it feels like every political problem is a massive, overwhelming crisis on such a vast global scale that nobody has any hope of figuring out, uh, never mind a country. And I think Aquinas would urge our leaders to take a slightly more Aristotelian perspective (laughs) to kind of try to break down our problems into concrete uh, steps and actions. I'm not trying to turn him into a business consultant. Uh, but, you know, politics is fundamentally about doing. Uh, and so uh, a polit- a political society that's kind of, in a washed in a wash with words, a wash with words might kind of need to take a step back and ask, well, what are the concrete problems that pervade our society? And what can we do about them here and now? And how can we keep going uh, so that we can work on them in 20 or 30 years? I mean, the power of thinking in terms of virtue in one way it might be sustainability, to think about it that way, uh, that living life justly today is going to help us live justly tomorrow and so on and so forth. Uh, so there's a very close relation there between means and ends. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, to kind of shift gears a little bit, you had a recent article in America magazine partly responding to this kind of back and forth that's been going on, but you also had already discussed this in your, in your, in your book where you're talking about these enduring principles of politics. And there's been this kind of back and forth discussion about basically about the, how the church and the state relate to one another. Um, You talk about these two enduring principles of politics in terms of dualism and the primacy of the spiritual. What, first of all, just say what that means. What are these, what are these principles what what does it mean?
1: Yeah, it, I think it's a very helpful set of terms because you can interpret them in manifold ways. <laughs> and I probably have changed my mind on a few things in the past few years on them. But the idea basically with dualism is Christianity introduces something new or exposes something new or reveals something new. And that is a personal God who offers us eternal life, you know, beatitude beyond any earthly happiness. And so you might think that human beings are built for a happiness of that kind, but we never could have really named it or attained it on our own. Uh, And so that's sort of a a differentiation or dualism, I think, that you can interpret in many, many different ways and has been interpreted in many ways uh, by Christians and non-Christians to talk about talk about Christianity, and of course, most, uh, you sometimes hear the the formulation of church and state, or two swords, or two powers, um, two cities, and obviously those all come with a lot of baggage, uh, different sorts of presupposition and assumptions, Uh, but yeah, there's the idea there that there's something beyond the temporal, beyond the secular, however you want to call that, and it's, it's, it's God's revelation lived out today through the church. The notion of the primacy of the spiritual is this notion uh is the idea that the spiritual that uh speaks to our transcendent aims and that again whatever kind of happiness we can have on earth on this side of the kingdom uh God is offering us something else, something qualitatively different and better in the beatific vision, and so there is a relationship a sort of correspondence there. That the authority, the church that conducts helps conduct us toward that end. and when you talk about these things, it's hard not to slip into sort of uh, you know scholastic language, but the sort of end this, the authority that kind of conducts us toward that end is higher. It's superior to to the temporal end. And again, that can be expressed in a variety of ways. In the 20th and 21st century, Catholics really shifted to thinking about the importance of conscience. Uh, and the idea that that human conscience had certain rights and certain privileges that even political authority couldn't trump, but again, yeah, those are I made it sound at once very simple and very complicated, probably at the same time, but the idea is that there are two, in the most simple terms, there are two powers, and the church is higher than the state
0: <laughs> well, yeah, it it can seem so simple, but um yeah, there's a lot, but there is still there is so much that's there. I mean, there's an element of it that's kind of like achieving some sort of final way of sort of ordering the that relationship i think is is elusive like it's you know that you're constantly having kind of shifts and 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 sometimes that's that's where a lot of religious liberty type debates come up is where it seems like one of the powers is is um kind of overstepped its boundaries and lately, there have been a lot of there have been a lot of debates in some quarters where that have been pretty contentious about kind of how the church and state should relate to each other, or you know how the two powers should be ordered to one another. Well, it seems to me that one of the the main kind of sticking points, and so I, and I'd love to hear your comment on this is the temporal authority or the civil authority or the the state, however you want to think of it, um, they, they kind of all have different connotations. But, but if you say the temporal authority directs us towards n- natural goods, and if the church or the, um, or the spiritual power is has, is supposed to guide us or direct us towards our supernatural goods, there's. It seems to me that the debate is often about like, well, how does that natural? How are the natural and supernatural coordinated to one another? Right. I mean, because like on the one hand, you want to make sure that you're saying that they remain distinct, and that's why like in the recent lecture from Russ Hittinger, he used the term separate. The idea is to that and we sort of assume this. That that the two will be separate, growing up in the United States, where that's just sort of the arrangement. But but in most, for most of human history, it hasn't necessarily been. I mean, that's part of what we're saying that Christianity introduced was to make it, this distinction. But even if they are distinct, you wouldn't want the natural natural goods are not at odds with supernatural goods and. So it seems like sometimes that's where the sticking point is. And I just wonder if you would care to comment and, and to bring it back to Derenio, like how are how are the job of the king is to direct the political community towards what is good in the natural sphere? What does that mean then with respect to his relationship to the church and to the supernet and to? the 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 community and and persons and with respect to the supernatural does that make sense and i i'm a little out no. of practice talking about these things but um
1: no it makes uh, a lot of it makes a lot of sense and of course you know we're backing up into a great question of 20th century Catholicism which is sort of the relationship between metaphysics and history because certainly some people would want to approach this question in primarily metaphysical terms, which wouldn't mean a historical, but that yeah they would ask questions about the ends of the human person in ways uh, that would then leave it very open. Well, how do we apply all that abstract thinking to the world we live in today? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know there was a shift obviously in the 20th century to more historical thinking, which at least some form of that is important because as you said. Christians find themselves in all sorts of contexts vis-à-vis political authority. So the way that Christian communities might relate to, say, you know, French revolutionary forces is a little different from the way they might have responded to, you know, living amongst American pro- Protestants in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, and that's important to be able to do to read the signs of the times. And I think what I think what's most striking about Reno is that Aquinas doesn't attempt to settle these debates, uh, and I, I don't think I'm just saying that because that's sort of my Jesuit love for ambiguity. Uh, I really do think that when you read Reno, you know, the first and foremost concern really is the differentiation of the two powers, and there is not a, an attempt to settle once and for all their relationship and in 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 the, the work there is this great sense in Aquinas that the differentiation of the two powers it's a real novelty um and as and as astute observers have noticed you know we, we tend to use more uh, spatial metaphors or re- for focus on power like you know One power has authority over this part of society and the other power has over this side. But the fact of the matter is, you know, somebody like Augustine would remind us, no, this is really a temporal distinction in a key respect, that Christianity introduced something new in history when God entered into history. And then uh, there's this idea that everything we see before us, the way in which we live political life, that's all passing. First of all, because we're living in sin. Uh, But second of all, because God wants to elevate this and transform it into something better. So to some extent, what's at stake in trying to coordinate the temporal and the spiritual powers is trying to make sense of this living out this taste of eternity Mm -hmm. uh, in the church and in the communion of saints and through the sacraments. And, And I think Aquinas wants to confront us again with the Constant challenge of that. And, and he is quite clear that in most places and most times in history, what we think of as religion and politics, they're mixed together and it's not really clear which is which. And then in some cases where they are more distinguished, religion often serves politics as a kind of handmaiden. And so I think Aquinas. You know, today, when we think about the separation of religion and politics or church and state, part of what we're often coming from is a sort of 17th century desire to let's just have some agree on what we can. Let's form a basic consensus and kind of protect political life from endless acrimony and dispute. I think Aquinas is coming at it from the other direction. I think he's saying Christianity, the gospel, is something that needs to be protected from political instrumentalization. Mm-hmm. Not to say that it doesn't have a profoundly social character and a profoundly communal bearing. Oh, it it does, it does. But as Russ Hittinger argued in that talk at CUA and in um, and in other places, the first order concern is always the, the newness of the gospel, the radicality of this breaking in. And, you know, maybe in the letters of St. Paul, talking about a new creation, a new man, a new thing, a new world, a revelation, talking about a, a new heaven, a new earth, a, a new Jerusalem, heavenly Jerusalem. Those are all the, the direction in which Aquinas is pointing us at. And so the challenge is a little bigger <laughs> than coordinating church yeah. and state as though it we're just a jurisdictional sort of skirmish yeah it really is again about living with this kind of foretaste of the kingdom among us and not ever allowing it to be reduced in our minds to something less than that.
0: Um, I mean, one of the ways you you talk about it in the that I believe it's in that final chapter where you talk about how it can go like it's hard to say exactly how the relationship is supposed to be went to be perfect, but you can see how it can go wrong as either civil religion or theocracy where, where basically where one uses instrumentalizes the other one, or where one sort of absorbs the other one, it, where, where one of the two, uh, one of the two powers, I guess gets absorbed into the other one to maintain the, the, uh, the proper distinction entails not going out of bounds. There can be lots of ways that the two, can work with each other, I think, or at least that's, this is the way I sometimes take it is there's all sorts of arrangements that can work. So it's not necessarily about like saying, what's the perfect, but then, but to say sort of, these are the, the boundaries, like, you know, that you've, that something has gone wrong when, when, when religion is just become, becomes a kind of civil religion Um, or when the state does not have its own sort of proper um, kind of autonomy. Does that, That's kind of I I think that's one way that can be helpful to look at the guy, look at these as sort of boundary markers.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And every society, every culture has to figure out how to work them out on their own terms, not because there are no principles at stake here, uh, but because the law can only be, you know, can only guide us and lead us so much It has to (laughs) begin with where we are. Mm hmm.
0: Well, just to kind of wrap us up, it's late October, we're looking ahead a bit to the solemnity of Christ the King. Uh, on the old calendar, it was celebrated, I guess, as would be this upcoming Sunday. So I always like to think of all of this time as kind of like thinking about Christ the King from the end of October all the way through um, the end of ordinary time. So in thinking about Christ the King, how should, especially now for the individual Catholic, how should our recognition of the kingship of Christ shape our thinking about
1: political life? The kingship of Christ is such a beautiful feast. Uh, <laughs> it's gorgeous. And I think it it has so much to teach us about uh, our political life today, as you suggest. I mean, I think, first of all, it's just to say that Christ is Lord and we are not. And I you can't emphasize that enough. Because I think in our narrow egotism, we can sometimes become, you know, sort of functionally solipsists and narcissists and kind of treat ourselves as as lords of history somehow, even though that normally works out negatively. You know, it's not that we think we're so great, but that we have all these problems that we have to deal with. Uh, That's not that's not how creation works. It's God is the Lord of history. Um, And so with that, too, I think comes a responsibility question is how are we responsible to god you know we living in political society we have a responsibility to other people we have a responsibility to future generations we have and that's all coming under god like our solidarity with other human people persons you know it has a vertical aspect that you can't ignore uh even if you want to which is so critical because of course the human family is endlessly divided uh even within our own local communities, we don't see much evidence of the unity of the human family. So Christ's kingship, that feast is a reminder that we have a, there's a supernatural source of that unity, even if we don't see it. And it, it calls us to be stewards. It calls us to be brothers and sisters to other people and recognizing that we can only do so much. You know, it's not to turn us into... Yeah, give us a kind of anxiety or a fear. Uh, there's an eschatological, even maybe apocalyptic dimension that we're trying to work toward a future that the Lord is building. We're not. Um, mm-hmm. So if that kind of goes back to, you know, the spiritual attitudes of the Psalms or Proverbs or Ecclesiastes is you're you're trying hard to dispose yourself uh, for a gift that you can only receive. <laughs> you mm-hmm. cannot give yourself beatitude. Mm hmm. Yeah, I also think if you find that, and many Catholics do, they find the notion of kingship of Christ very bizarre, because we don't have kings anymore, of course, we're you know, obviously people in the U.S. are living in a democracy. Uh, but I would challenge you to ask yourself, you know, who are the people uh, that I de facto do treat as kings and queens in my life, that they're maybe some kind of celebrities, I don't know, or political elites or maybe people in your personal life who you really put at the front and center. And you might, you know, not be very happy to recognize that or realize it. Uh, but I, I I just think the celebrity culture in the U.S. is pretty clear evidence that humans are very, you know, we're worshipping we're animals. We're deeply liturgical. We want to worship a leader. Uh, so why not make it Christ?
0: Well, I really appreciate you uh, taking this time to talk with me. And I yeah, I love the book. Uh, the book is The Christian Structure of Politics on the Reño of Thomas Aquinas. It was published by Catholic University of America Press just this past year, right? In 2022. Right. And I um, I believe the paperback should be coming out soon. So if you check it out, if you look and get sticker shock when you see the hardcover price um the paperbacks coming out soon. So I, I definitely I think it's a very helpful book, a, a very helpful intervention. So really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. It's great to be with you.
0: I'm Aaron Weldon and thank you for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast. <laughs>